0: you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, couples are often told to have a date night to keep the romance alive, but there's something even better. Then, the power of your memory, it starts with
1: understanding how it works. To give you an example of that, people will say to me, well, I've read this page in a book or in a magazine, and I can't remember anything. Well, that's only because you've just done enough to read and understand it. You haven't actually done enough to remember it because there are a few more stages you've got to do in order to put it into your memory.
0: Plus, what's that little pocket inside the big pocket on blue jeans? And so much of the
2: trouble in relationships is we don't know how to listen. Consensus right now on... Accuracy of listening is that most people in a condition of relaxation have an about 18 to 20% accuracy rate in receiving what somebody else said. If they're upset, they have zero. All this today on
0: something you should know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need indeed. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know, an interesting and fun episode for you today, so you picked a good one to spend some time with. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have some really great, different, and wonderful sponsors on Something You Should Know, and pretty much all of them. Certainly the ones I talk about personally, I check out personally. I try their products and services, and if I say I use them, I really use them. So listen and consider buying from our sponsors, because doing so is a great way to support something you should know. We begin today by talking about romance. Every couple, every married couple, has been told that it's important to have a weekly date night. While it's hard to find fault with the idea, some interesting data shows that the time couples spend alone together is not their highest quality time. In fact, couples in the Sloan Center's 500 Family Study rated the quality of the time they spent together as a family higher than the time they spent together alone. But even that was not the highest quality time. The highest quality time was the kid-free time couples spent together with friends. Why? Well, much of the time that married couples with children spend alone together is time spent talking about the family— who will pick up the kids after school on Tuesday, and all of that. It's all very predictable. However, spending time as a couple with friends allows for new and interesting conversation and experiences. And novelty is associated with more intense and positive emotions between partners. And that is something you should know. Chances are, at some point recently, you have forgotten something that you really, really wanted to remember. You intended to remember it. You thought you would remember it, but you didn't. While we like to think that memory works kind of like a filing cabinet, it actually doesn't work that way. However, some people have great memories. And they have great memories because they work at it. My guest is one of them. Michael Tipper won second place in the World Memory Championship by memorizing the order of nine decks of cards nine decks of cards he's the author of a book called instant recall and he is here to help you make your memory work better hi michael welcome
1: hey thank you mike for inviting me really looking forward to having a
0: conversation with you so start by explaining why you decided to dive so deep into this and make your memory so good that you can pretty much remember anything
1: it goes back a few years now i was an average student at school um, but then i joined the armed forces i joined the royal navy and found myself struggling with a different form of learning that i was used to than when i was at school and because it was a different form of learning and i struggled with it i thought i naturally had a bad memory and so i did, uh, I was 16 years old at the time and I invested in a memory course, basically discovered that it wasn't that I had a bad memory, it was just I didn't know how to learn properly. And when I suddenly expanded my skill set with some fairly simple techniques that had been around quite a long time, all of a sudden I discovered that there were ways I could learn things very quickly and, la- and put them into my long-term memory uh, at will. And it was a revelation for me that got me quite excited about developing memory.
0: Well, one of the things I've always wondered is, does everyone have the same potential for memory or do some people just have better memories than other people, just like some people are better at sports than other people?
1: I think there are people who naturally find that their mental makeup has greater clarity, greater specificity, greater ability to recall. I've worked with people who can remember, for example, the weather every day of their life. Um, i've met people who can read a book once, remember everything but i think those are are rare so there are people who can do that but what i do know based on my own experience is that everyone has the capacity to be able to learn far more than they believe they currently can do at the moment so i took um the techniques to an extent where i came second i won the silver medal in the world memory championships i've memorized um nine decks of playing cards which it sounds an amazing feat i suppose it is but everyone has the ability to be able to do that um it's if you can imagine something so if you can imagine uh, an image in your mind then already you have the, the ability to be able to do that it's whether you have the discipline and determination and inclination to put yourself through the necessary training to get to the point where you can remember a lot of stuff
0: You know, I remember hearing somebody talking on this subject once who said, you know, one of the reasons we don't remember where like where we put our keys or where we is that we we're not paying attention that, you know, our mind is somewhere else and that that a lot of memory is just focusing on what you want to remember
1: absolutely i would wholeheartedly agree with that um that's one of i, I believe are three reasons um, and, and concentration is probably the main reason so when you drive a car for example um when you first start driving you have to really think about it but then what happens there comes a point where you can do it sub, uh, almost subconsciously without actually thinking about it and often what happens when we are when we come home and we put our keys down it's something we probably do every single day and i've probably done hundreds if not thousands of times and because it's auto we are not in a conscious state of mind when we put them down and so later on when we come to think well where are my keys Um, we were never actually present when we put them down in our conscious mind Uh, and that's what tends to happen is that we tend to um, be thinking of something else The, the classic case is when you are introduced to someone for the first time and you are so busy shaking someone's hand and saying your own name that you never really listen or hear the other person's name so it's like in one ear at the other and you and you think you've forgotten the name when actually all it is is concentration so yes absolutely concentration is a key factor in why people often think they've forgotten something
0: when people do forget in other words it's not a case that they weren't paying attention but they they have it in their mind something that they know but it somehow disappears where does it go and
1: why is it not more like a filing cabinet where once it's in there it's in there um, the first thing is that we have a short term. Well, yeah, We have a working memory. Um, we have a short term memory and then we have a medium to long term memory. And things need to happen for information to pass from one through to the other. So I can give you uh, a number now. So if I say four, seven, three, two, six that number is in your working memory and you're probably able to recall that if you were listening to it. Uh, So I I said four, seven, three, two, six. So I've just repeated it because it's in my working memory. Um, Now, if I repeat that a few times, that then transfers to my short-term memory. But then what's likely to happen is that unless I do something to transfer it to my long-term memory, I'm likely to forget that number. So um, it's the same with other information that we learn. And what tends to happen is we, we encounter a lot of stuff during the day, a lot of information, even when in a learning environment and what the brain does the brain has this thing called synaptic pruning and what it does it, it audits all the connections in the brains in the brain and those that are old and haven't really been used very much it tends to sort of snip away and allow them to be used for other things so there are a number of reasons why we forget things one it hasn't transferred from working to short term to long term other times it's a synaptic pruning other times sometimes things are just harder to recall I mean, you've probably had situations where you may have seen someone who you know you know but you just can't recall their names straight I hate, away. I hate that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> and, and often there are a number of reasons why that happens. And, so, and I wish I knew the answer to it all to be able to say this is the definitive answer. But it does happen sometimes. And sometimes there are, there are confusion uh, uh, with other things. Um, and I, I read a statistic recently that often something like 80 to 90% of what we think we remember is actually wrong because we tend to put different slants on it and different perspectives on it.
0: Really? Well, yeah. I I remember uh, talking to someone who said that when you recall something, an event, you're not really recalling the event. You're recalling the last time you recalled the event. And the more you recall it, the more distorted it gets because you're not really remembering the actual event. You're remembering what you remembered the
1: last time you remembered it. Uh, Pretty much so. Yeah, that's a really good description of uh, what actually goes on. And so we think we can remember things um, one way, but actually the the, slight distortions over a period of time can probably change the memory quite significantly.
0: Yeah. And and that sensation that people have, and I I had it just the other day when I was talking to my son, that it's right on the tip of my tongue. I know I know it. It's almost Mm. there and I can't, I can't pull
1: it out. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one, because what you want to do, that frustration that drives you to want to um, pull it out actually is going to drive it deeper into your memory. So it, it won't, it's harder to recall. And what I found the best thing that, that works for me is acknowledging that, OK, it's a little bit hard to access now when you're ready, bring it, bring it to my mind. And I just let it go. And often it comes back relatively quickly. But the harder you sort of try and dig deeper to pull it out, it seems the more elusive that becomes.
0: Yeah, it's a very frustrating experience. Well, p- probably the, the thing that people have the most trouble with or say they have the most trouble with is remembering names. So, so what's mm. a way to do that?
1: Well, I think if we come back to what we've talked about earlier, the main reason that people forget the name is they never have it in the first place. And so a very, very simple technique is when you're introduced to someone for the first time, you set the intent that you're going to get their name. Uh, Don't worry about saying your name, get your handshake right. That will come. But just get the intent uh, of asking the name. So you ask them their name. They might say, well, my name is James. And so you'd say, "Okay," um," you'd repeat, oh, James, nice to meet you. So, straight away, by using it, you've put it into your slightly more deeper into your working memory. And then, having said that, James, um, you might ask their, their, their second name uh, and th- they'll tell you, let's say it was Peyton. Um, OK, James Peyton. Nice to meet you. How do you spell that by? Uh, How do you spell that? So you might ask them a question about the name. So what you're doing there is you're taking a genuine interest in the name. Um, or you might say, oh, I, kn- I knew someone called Peyton. Um, uh, they spelt it with an E. Do you spell it with an E? Uh, and so you had this little conversation. So all of a sudden now the information has become that much more richer in your mind. So there are more hooks. You've said it a couple of times. You've explained the spelling of it. Uh, You might have checked that your pronunciation is correct. So when in this multicultural society we live in, you meet people from different cultures. And so often the names might sound alien to you because they're from a different culture. So one of the things I I try and do is I'll ask people, how do you say that? Have I I said that right? So I'll, I'll make sure the pronunciation is. And because I'm quite a visual person, I might ask them how they spell it so I can get it clearer. Then I'll use it a couple of times. And then if you've met four or five people You can do that. And some people might say, well, that takes a long time. Well, if you think about it, an introduction between five people usually is a quick shake of hands to James. David, Janet, John—very, uh, very quickly. But actually, if you take the time to shake their hand, uh, ask them their name, tell them their name, have that little conversation, you've actually built up a stronger degree of rapport because you've taken a little bit more interest in them, and you start to build that relationship. Then you do it with the next person, and then the next person, and then you might even say, "Well, let me just check—I've got these names right." And you're genuinely showing an interest in their names, and it's amazing how people feel so much more valued that way. And then once you're with the these people you might then review their name in your mind use it a couple of times and then you've got their name so that's what you do in the short term but in the long term
0: as you were saying earlier if you don't see that person for a month your brain does that pruning thing
1: you were talking about and now you've forgotten again it can do so one of the things that you can do to remember them long term so for example uh, one of the things that I do is uh, I do a lot of training courses and I'll go into companies and I'll work with with companies and I'll then I'll go back and work with the same people sometimes three to four months later so what I do is I will make sure I learn their names when I first meet them and I might be with them for three or four days and I, and I, I learn their names then what I do I take a, a a photograph of the group and then I'll put that into uh, I put that into Evernote and I'll make a few notes on, their, uh, on, on, on them as people and their names. So I've got a record of it. And then later on when I come back, I actually go back and review that to make sure I've got their names. Sometimes I remember them, sometimes I don't. So um, there are ways that are use that are practical using techniques like that allow me to recall those names. And ultimately, when you've got things like Facebook and uh, LinkedIn connections, often you'll connect with people through these methods. You can just go and have a quick look online pull their name out and uh, see, remind yourself what they look like. There's all sorts of ways you can do to refresh your mind and, and strengthen that mental image.
0: It seems like I shouldn't have to say this because everyone who's listening now has already got a better memory, but I'll say it anyway, that my guest is Michael Tipper. He is a world memory champion, and he's author of the book Instant Recall. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential... And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, a shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why, if there's relief, Why not try it? Claritin-D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So, Michael, you said that when you meet someone, you put their name in your computer, you make some notes. You do a lot of work, and it's, it seems like I think most of us like to believe or, or, or would hope that our memory works better than that, that it doesn't require that much deliberate effort to remember someone. We should just remember.
1: Well, that's an interesting point. And I think that often people's expectations of what their memory should do um, far exceed what they've actually done. And to give you an example of that, one of the things related to common problems is people will say to me, well, I've read this page in a book or in a magazine, and I get to the bottom, I can't remember anything. Um, And I say to people, well, that's only because you've just done enough to read and understand it. You haven't actually done enough to remember it because there are a few more stages you've got to do in order to put it into your memory so i would agree with you that there are things that it would be nice to be able to to meet someone uh for the for the first time and go through a process of uh re- remembering the name forever and there are some people who can actually do that having met them once but what i found certainly from my own experience and, and a lot of the people i've taught over the years is that if you want to do that regularly it be, it becomes a habit it needs to become a habit. It can become a skill that you can develop and there are certain if you like safety net mechanisms You can put in place so that you're able to recall that information at a future date um, So you do have to do a little bit more than just meet them for the first time and that's it There's there's more you've got to do So let's test your memory you threw out a number
0: about ten minutes ago. Do you remember what it was?
1: There was a four in it and I think it ended in a six and I think there's a three and a seven so the answer is no so what what you've got there is a perfect example of um, me using it into my working memory. I put it in my short term memory then, but it's drifted to the point where what was it now? I'm asking myself. I don't know.
0: Well, and now, see, here, applied, here's here's what's interesting is that I and I didn't write it down. But I was going to ask you later, so I did a little more work on that as you were talking. I was going—I said to myself, "Okay, you need to remember this so you can ask him later." And so I did exactly what you were talking about, and I remembered it four seven three two six, and you didn't because you didn't do that extra work. Exactly. So that exactly. means that means that I could win the gold medal at the next uh, memory championship.
1: Mike, I think I've just met my match.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like how you explained it, because you can kind of visualize the process of of information moving from your working memory to your short-term memory to your long-term memory. And it's a process of getting it there, as opposed to just, will I or won't I remember this?
1: Well, here's an analogy that um, I love using that sort of explains quite neatly how the brain actually works. Because when you learn something, when you've got a fact in your mind that you can recall, it is a physical connection between two or more brain cells. It is a physical connection. So when I tell you a single fact, so like that number earlier on, um, if you can imagine walking through a cornfield, you walk through it for the first time, and when you get to the other side and look back, you probably – can't really see where you've been because the, the, the you might see a little bit where you've been and if you just left that cornfield never went back again where you had been would grow over quite quickly but if before it started to grow over you went back again and made the path slightly wider um, you'd now have more evidence of you being through that cornfield again if you never went back there again that cornfield would grow over but it would take slightly longer because your path is now wider However, if before it started to grow over, you went back again and made a slightly wider track now, um, you could see more of where you've been. And that's what it's like in the
0: brain. Okay, but you, using that analogy, then what are you doing every time you go up and down the cornfield there? What are you doing? Are you reading something again? Are you? How is it that you're revisiting that material
1: in your brain? So this is, this is really important, One of the, probably one of the biggest things I learned about memory, beyond all the fancy techniques of memorizing cards and numbers, but there's this factor. Most people, when they're learning stuff, they will read it, okay, and then they'll put it to one side. And when they're going to revise again, they'll read it again. And what happens is they become familiar with the content because they keep looking at it. And they confuse that familiarity with knowing, oh, I recognize this, therefore I must know it. But actually, if they try and recall it, they struggle to do that. So the secret when you're learning stuff is learn it once, put it to one side, then try and recall from memory and do it without looking at it. And you initially might think, oh, I can do some of it. And there's a bit I, but I can't remember. Or oh, what is it? What's that bit? What is it? And you hold off. Looking at it, you've put that you, you create this tension in your mind where you say, "Oh, what is it? what is it? Oh, was it this? was it that, oh, what is it? And then it, it comes to a point where you can stand it no longer. Then you look, you go, "Oh, that's what it was. And there's something about that breaking that tension that puts it into your long-term memory. And that's one of the biggest things I've discovered about how to develop your ability to recall the stuff that you learn. Well, that sort of
0: explains, I think, if I heard you correctly, it, You know how when you're in the car and you hear a song on the radio, you can sing along with the song and you know the lyrics as long as you're singing along with the song that's on the radio? But try to remember the lyrics when you get home and the music's off. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to pull it out of memory as opposed to having the context of the
1: song playing. (laughs) Absolutely. There's also a very interesting variation on that theme. So there are probably a lot of songs that you can remember from your teenage years that you probably are able to sing all the way through. Would that be true? Yeah, I'm sure, of you? course. Yeah. Okay. So, and the reason for that is because at that time in our life, music probably meant much more to us because it was part of our identity um, in, in our youth and all the emotions that we were going through, so our first loves and uh, all all those things that were coursing through our veins when we we're teenage uh, teenage years. So you've got the music, which was part of our identity. You've also got words and rhythm coming together and the rhythm is quite important and that laced with the emotion allows us to remember that information much more so I hear songs from my youth and I can sing along to them I can probably sing them off the top of my head for some of them but then there's st- music that I've become more interested in as I've got older um, I, I, I do as you say I, 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 I need to listen to it and sing along with it I couldn't recreate it with a guitar on my own so, so that's what's happening there
0: Are there any ways to jog your memory as people say, you know,
1: oh, I I just, I, I, it's there. I I know it's in there. I just need to get it out. If you put too much pressure on, um, Uh, then that's going to uh, almost embed it further into your mind so you can't get it. So thinking, relaxing, saying, right, I know I know it. I trust it's going to come when I need it. But let me think about other things that might trigger that. And then all of a sudden, about two or three minutes later, it suddenly pops into your mind. I've had that happen to me so many times. But you have to trust that that mechanism works. You've talked about a lot of
0: tactics and, and strategies to improve memory, but is there kind of an overriding concern or suggestion that you have that w-
1: would easily make people's memories work better if they only knew? The one thing that I would suggest to people about just generally improving their mental abilities, their, their ability to remember and learn stuff, is that stress is probably the biggest barrier to effective cognitive functioning. And so if all you did was learn how to handle stress, um, be able to um, lots of good exercise, healthy diet, hydrate well, maybe learn to meditate, just that alone is going to give you the best foundation the best framework in which your mind can operate and then once you've got that then you can start exploring some of the the, the techniques that you'll find all over the place to be able to do some of the more uh, fancy stuff so just sort out the brain health first that's a huge starting point that'll have a big impact on your ability to learn and remember stuff and then on top of that use some of the techniques that you can find out uh, all over the place
0: Well, as good as our memories work, I'm sure everyone has had the experience on multiple occasions where your memory failed when you really needed it to work. So it's good to know there are things you can do to really commit something to memory when you have to. Michael Tipper has been my guest. He won second place in the World Memory Championship by memorizing the order of nine decks of playing cards. His book is Instant Recall, and you'll find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you coming on.
1: It's been a pleasure, Michael, and thank you for a great conversation.
0: Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that, that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This episode of Something You Should Know is being published in June of 2021, springtime, when thoughts turn to love and romance. So I thought it would be interesting to look at what it is that makes happy couples happy, and perhaps more importantly, what it is that couples can do to make their relationship better if it's not so happy. So the person I've turned to is Dr. Harvel Hendricks. For several years now, he's been helping couples in therapy and also writing books and speaking about couples and what it takes to have a successful relationship. His latest book is called Getting the Love You Want. It's actually the updated paperback version of a book he wrote a while ago that became a bit of a classic and a huge bestseller after he appeared on Oprah. Hi, Harville. Good to talk with you again. So in all your work with couples, what is it that you see as the biggest challenge couples have?
2: Well, the biggest problem that we see that is chronic is the difficulty one person has accepting the reality of another person as valid as their own. That is, there is seemingly in the human heart universally a yearning that the person that you're with And you have the same worldview, that you live in the same world, that you are in many ways the same. I think the marketing word right now for uh, dating sites is uh, compatibility and degrees of compatibility. And what our experience is, is that we have never seen a compatible couple if they fell in love. If you sort of decided you were going to start up a, uh, a, a partnership, a relationship, but didn't feel the attraction that we assign to the experience of romantic love, then you might build a relationship rationally, logically, based on compatibility. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You're saying that
0: if you are in a relationship where you initially fell in love, kind of head over heels, like in the movies, kind of fell in love, that puts you at a disadvantage compared to somebody who maybe approached the relationship much more logically and deliberately, which, much <laughs> on Valentine's Day, is not what I think I want to hear. But, but okay, so I buy that. So, because uh, it, it makes sense if you do something a little more deliberately and a little more rationally, uh, the outcome may likely be better. But so, what does all this mean? So, what is the big problem that couples have then? What is the, regardless of how we got to be a couple, what is the the big problem?
2: The problem often in relationships is. That you are different from the person I thought I married. So it's a, that's, the, that's the classic power struggle. So that I want you to be like I need you to be in order for me to be assured that I'm going to get what I need from you.
0: That causes problems that show up how?
2: Almost in every transaction. You know, you didn't show up last night for dinner. You were late. Uh, it shows up in all of the forms of criticism that one partner has of the other. That is, the partner, each partner has in their mind a, uh, what we would call an ideal image of the type of person that they are projecting onto their partner. And when their partner doesn't behave according to that image, then I have to object to that. And I'll do it with a criticism, like, you don't do that, you always do that, you never stop doing that, when are you going to stop doing that? In other words, don't be the person that you are. Be the person I need you to be. So any criticism is an attempt to reg- regulate the partner and get them to become the person that fits the image in your mind.
0: Isn't that interesting? D- d- don't be the person you are. Be the person I need you to be. That, that right there, that's huge.
2: And then what is even more interesting is that we, we believe, people believe, couples believe that. If I criticize you enough and tell you enough about how you are not the person I need you to be, then you will become that person. So the more I criticize you, and it's interesting, I've asked uh, partners this over and over again in the last 40 years that I've been doing couples therapy. So if you keep on saying to George that he's always late and that he never um, speaks up and initiates a conversation, what is your fantasy about what he will do? And she said, oh, he'll show up on time and he'll initiate conversations, and he'll express emotions. So you you think that if you hurt him enough, he will love you the way you wanna be loved. Am I getting that? And then they say, oh, didn't realize I was hurting him. I thought I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that's the that's the that's what we call the power struggle impasse, is you wanna be yourself, but if you are yourself, I don't get my needs met, so you can't be yourself. You have to be the person I need And therefore, you have to be annihilated so I can have my ideal person. So if
0: you're not the person I need, who were you before that attracted me to you in the first
2: place? There are three stages in all relationships. And one is it starts out great, and that's called romance. The second one is that then it goes bad. And the third stage is you try to create a conscious partnership. Uh, In other words, resolve all these issues. But this, this drama in the power struggle that, that um, I've been referring to was preceded by stage number one, which is romantic love, in which each person unconsciously uh, presented themselves to the other person as the right person. Somehow we kind of know that your partner needs X, Y, and Z. But you know also that that's not you to be that way. So uh, what happens after a few, uh, sometimes it's days, weeks, months. And I've found also found that the average sort of coming out party of I am going to be me in this relationship uh, happens at about the third or fourth year and produces a divorce around the fifth and seventh year.
0: So if you're in a relationship with someone and you want them to be someone they're not, well, that seems like uh, a car crash waiting to happen. How do you fix that <laughs> a, as opposed to saying, well, then
2: see you later? Well, and and 50 percent for ever since 1972, that number of people do say goodbye. Um, you know, I, I can't get what I need from you. You won't be the person I need. You're not the person I need. Made a mistake. Uh, so I'm going to go on. What they don't know is that they will cross the street or go to the other side meet somebody else and repeat the same drama so how do you get how do you fix this how do you how do you make this happen what you have to do is uh, become aware that you're actually married to another person and we call that differentiation you have to get it that you uh, that the person that you're married to is not you nor are they uh, identical with the fiction you have of the person that you need So how will you discover that? So what we have done, and it works uh, practically every time, uh, is have have people learn a new way to talk. So you're in the home and a conflict happens and there's a rupture. One person uh, will need to learn to stop and say, uh, could could we redo that? We call it a redo. Could you say that to me in a different way so that I don't feel put down? The, The other thing you do if you don't have any instructions, you've not read a book, you don't have any knowledge, but you need to do one thing is if somebody says something to you, mirror them back before you respond, because most of the time you are about 80 to 90% wrong about what you heard. So you'll respond to your, to, to your own distortion. So you can say that. And so if you, we've said to many people who said, well, what if my partner won't go to therapy? What if he won't engage in anything? Usually it's a, what if he won't, um, what, what do I do? And so this is what we say to them is, Sort of like Gandhi said, "Be the change you want to see." So, become curious about him. Um, you might, but not interrogate. So, what's going on for you? Um, blah blah blah, and then learn to say something back, like, "Okay, that that makes sense," or "I can see that," or "I get it that you're feeling that way." So, one of the principles that we say to couples that you have to do in your relationship is you simply have to end negativity. That negativity will always produce anxiety, anxiety will produce a defense, a defense will produce polarization, and that's not what you want. So if you, whenever you have a need that is not being met, learn to ask for what you want in any transaction rather than comment on what you're not getting. Because if you do the second one, the person's going to go defensive. If you say, what I would like is that when we have an appointment to be at dinner at seven o'clock, Uh, and you find yourself not able to be there, would you call me 30 minutes ahead of time and let me know so I know when to come? In other words, remove negativity. And the other uh, piece that works is uh, in, in real life is to find things about your partner, real things that you really appreciate and say on a regular basis, spontaneously, you know, I appreciate uh, your bringing me a cup of coffee this morning i appreciate that you told me about what was going on. Whatever shows up that you appreciate your partner did for you that day. Helen and i have a ritual of every night before we go to sleep. Our ritual is three appreciations for something that you did today that i really appreciate.
0: And so what what's the magic there? What is appreciation in, inserting into the relationship?
2: Well, appreciations say to the person you're not an enemy your friend, I see you as valuable bloodstream, blood neurochemicals change to endorphins and you begin to feel, uh, connected. Uh, if you want to ramp it up a little bit, give each other a one minute hug, uh, a hug, uh, one minute uh, activates uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin is a bonding chemical. So you actually feel closer when that chemical is aroused, when, um, When the um, cortisol is aroused because you glared at them, you actually feel ruptured. So uh, approach behaviors, moving toward the partner with appreciation, moving toward the partner with curiosity, dropping all negativity and going to asking for what you want creates a safe space in the relationship.
0: You said something a few minutes ago that caught my attention, and I want to come back and revisit that. You said something like... uh, that when we hear, what we hear is like really only
2: 20% accurate? The, um, the consensus right now on accuracy of listening is that most people in a condition of, of relaxation, they're not aroused, not distracted, not scared, not anxious. They're relaxed, feeling good, have about 18 to 20% accuracy rate in receiving what somebody else said. If they're upset, they have zero, they receive zero. Everything is distorted. This is why it's important to say, let me see if I got that. So to learn that as a mechanism in everyday life with anybody, your partner, with, with you, with a friend, to say, let me see, if, let, let, did I get this? You said, you, you're going to go to the bathroom and you'll be back in 10 minutes, okay? Got it. And so it reduces anxiety, the distortion creates anxiety. What you want to do is create a safe environment. Any way you can do that, and you cannot create one if you're negative, period.
0: When you say get rid of negativity, I'm thinking that, you know, in relationships, there's a lot of different kinds of negativity. Some of it seems necessary. So maybe zero in a little more on what you mean about this negativity that has to stop.
2: What we mean specifically is the partner put down. You didn't do that you didn't call me, you, we were late and you frowned at me or what, whatever puts the partner down and says you did something wrong is the primary negation that has to go away and replaced with what you would like. Uh, like when you come into the room, I would really love a big hug instead of you came into the room and you didn't even look at me. So you ask for what you want. The brain is designed in such a way that it knows how to actualize Things that are connecting and survival, uh, but when you go negative, it only knows how to defend itself. So, it back away or do something. Whatever you have to do to defend yourself.
0: But if you're if you're in a relationship with someone who is constantly late, how do you how do you never say anything? How do you never say I'm really getting tired that you're always late?
2: Well, when you say that, they'll always be late, and they'll also not like you uh, more. So what you do is to say, could we talk about our uh, schedule, our appointment times? Would would you be willing to have a conversation? With and I'd like to tell you what I would like in our relationship. And uh, what I would like is that when we when you when we make an agreement about you know dinner at seven, what I would like is for you to be there at seven. Oh, and if you can't, because you know sometimes you can't, <clears throat> give me a call and tell me you're going to be there at seven thirty. Uh, Then I know what to do with my time, uh, with dinner or whatever. So instead of going into what I don't like, ask for what you want. And you can then talk about anything. As long as you don't make it your partner's problem, you're having the problem with his lateness. He's not having a problem with his lateness. So you want him to change so that you won't be uncomfortable about his lateness. So ask for that in a kind and loving way, and more than likely he'll say, oh my God, I didn't realize I was blah, blah, blah. I'll do that. I'll call you in the future. I'll do my best to be there on time. Well, I know
0: for a lot of couples, that would be a big shift in how they communicate with each other. But as you say, the negativity and the criticism and the complaining can't be doing much to help either. Harville Hendricks has been my guest. The book is Getting the Love You Want, and you'll find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Harville. Appreciate it. You're
2: welcome. Thank you.
0: Blue jeans have been around for a long time, so you probably don't stop and think about them a whole lot. But one question that does come up from time to time is about that little pocket, that little pocket inside the big pocket. Why is it there, and what was it designed to do? Well, while it's often called a coin pocket, Holding coins was not the original intent. The pocket was actually put there by Levi Strauss himself, the man who invented blue jeans. And he put it there to protect your pocket watch. But since you likely don't carry a pocket watch, the pocket goes unused. Over the years, it's been called many things. Frontier pocket, match pocket, ticket pocket, to name a few. But the real reason was the pocket watch. And that is Something You Should Know. Please tell your friends about us. I'm sure they would enjoy listening to this podcast as much as you do, and it's a great way to support us and help us grow the audience. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know